Good morning, everyone. This is Kathleen Dillahunt, and this is the third week in looking at Your Kingdom Come, Your Will Be Done, Matthew chapter 5 to 8, where Jesus was sitting on the Mount Beatitudes and he was teaching his disciples on how to be able to establish and take the church further after he had left and he also came to introduce the new covenant to them so that they had a clarity of understanding of what it meant to be under the new covenant now this morning we're going to start looking at where jesus unpacks the ten commandments so when we look at the ten commandments as written in exodus they they basically are this i am the lord your god you shall not have a strange god before me Number two, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number three, remember to keep holy the Lord's day, the Sabbath. Number four, honor your father and your mother. Number five, you shall not kill. Number six, you shall not commit adultery. Number seven, you shall not steal. Number eight, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Number nine, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. So those were the 10 commandments that Moses went up and and received from the Lord. And then God um, wrote them on the the rock, on on the tablets. And that's what he brought down to the Israelites. And after that, there were a whole lot of other rules that were made. Rules for the priests and rules for the people. And there were a whole lot of rules that were written by which they had to live by. You see, in the Old Testament, friends, it was what you did that qualified or disqualified you. In the New Testament, it's what you think that qualifies or disqualifies you. Because God looks at the heart. It's not on the outside, it's in the heart. Okay, so in Mark 12 verse 30, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When they asked him, which is the most important commandment? Now, we might think that that's really strange, that he just completely disqualifies the other eight um, commandments that were there for them to live by. But actually, in that answer, what Jesus did was he grouped together the first three, which were all about our relationship with God, And he grouped together the first three commandments and he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and his strength. And that is far, far, far deeper, friends, than just loving him when we came and brought our sacrifices before him in repentance. And then he said, love your neighbor as you would yourself. Now, when you look at the other uh, seven commandments that are left after that, they are all talking about our relationships with other people. So in that statement, Jesus actually took all 10 and summarized them in two lines. How amazing is that? Now I'm going to start looking at where Jesus teaches on the 10 commandments. So we're reading from Matthew 5 verse 21 and 22. It says, You have heard that it was told those who lived long ago, you are not to commit murder. And whoever murders will be subject to punishment. But I say to you, Anyone who is angry with his brother without a cause will be subject to punishment. That word angry means to provoke or arouse anger, to be in wrath, to be boiling about them, to be exasperated, to have a temper tantrum, to have a violent explosion, to punish in anger or to take vengeance. I say to you, if anyone is 
angry with his brother, without cause, he will be subject to punishment. So now suddenly Jesus isn't just saying that killing a person is murder, but being angry with a person and reacting, exploding on that anger, that is murder because you are annihilating and you're wiping out that person with your rage by the words you speak and by the actions that you take. And then he goes on to say, and whoever says to his brother Raka will be subject to counsel. Now, counsel means judges, the assembly of people, the elders of the church, or held accountable for punishment accordingly to what they've done. So God says, hold people accountable that speak derogatory of their fellow man. Hold them accountable. You know, the truth is, friend, that if we really did have to start holding people accountable in the church, half the people would leave because they get so offended when people are held accountable. We don't want to be held accountable anymore. But Jesus in the New Testament under grace said, we have to be held accountable for the way we speak and for the way we treat other people. And then it says, um, raka, which means worthless, empty-headed. Um, it means to have maliciousness towards them, to be critical of them, to be backbiting, to abuse or to slander another person. And then it goes on to say in Matthew 5, And whoever says, you fool, will be subject to the hellfire. Fool means stupid, irrelevant, bad, wicked, ungodly. Wow, these are such strong words. We think that when, when we come into the New Testament, we're under grace and we're not accountable. Actually, we're far more accountable, friends. We're far more accountable because we are accountable for our very thoughts, for the very way that we feel inside. And Jesus says, I'm going to hold you accountable for that. You have to understand you're under a new covenant. It's a blood covenant. You don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. I've paid the price. I have paid the ultimate sacrifice of forgiveness. When I hung on that cross and I died for you, I released the greatest form of forgiveness on your life. And if you cheapen that, if you cheapen the cross experience of forgiveness, you will be held accountable. That's what he's basically saying here. Then in verse 23, it says, Therefore, if you are presenting your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and first go and be reconciled with your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So now he's saying, if, you, if another person is offended with you, why? Because you've done one of the above. You've treated them badly. You've spoken badly to them. You've called them a fool. You've, you've, you've been derogatory about them. You've been angry toward them. You've had an explosion of rage towards them. Your behavior has offended another person and hurt another person. And if you come before the altar to give your gift. Now, the Bible says in Romans 12 that our bodies are um, a living sacrifice of worship. So when we come and worship before the Lord. And just come and love on him and worship him. Or when we come to break bread and to partake of the covenant of God, do not touch it. Do not come and worship God while there is somebody that is ought against you. You go and you make right. You go and you repent to them. And I want to tell you something about repentance, friends. Repentance is what we have to do. They don't have to receive it. But it's not their receiving it that sets us free. It's the fact that we've gone and made right and repented. And remember, remorse means, I'm sorry you caught me out. 
Repentance means I'm disgusted with my behavior and it's a 180 degree turn away from that which you were doing. So God says, if there is anyone that is offended with you because of your behavior, friends, people can be offended with us because of our walk in God. People can be offended with us because they don't like us. But none of that is our problem. But if they're offended and hurt and angry because of what we've done to them, of what we've done against them, remember the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. We're not fighting each other. We have an enemy. That's who we've got to be fighting. And the moment that we turn our fight onto each other, friends, God says, I'm going to hold you accountable. And in some cases, literally, you will land up in hell. I think that is a really serious warning for us to take note of, especially in these times where there's been such a spirit of offense that's been released against people. And so many people are walking around offended. And God says, check your heart, check your attitude, deal with what's operating there. Do not let this result in you ending up going to hell one day. The message in 1 Corinthians is even stronger. It says this, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 27 to 31, and this is Paul writing. He says, Wherefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks judgment on himself not discerning the Lord's body. And that is why many of you are weak, sick, and have fallen asleep. But if you judge yourself correctly, you will not be judged. So what does it say, friends? It says, when you come to partake of the breaking of bread, do not touch that until you have assessed your own heart. And if there's aught that you have against somebody, and if there's any hurt, any pain, any anger, any rage, you go and make right with them. Don't touch it. Make right with God, make right with man. And then once you've done that, go and partake and seal covenant and have the fullness of the covenant of forgiveness be available to you. But he says, if you don't do that, you put yourself under judgment. Now, what we have to realize, friends, it's not God's judgment. We place ourselves under powers and powers are demonic magistrates and judges. And they put people into prisons. That's what they do. And we place ourselves under powers. And that's what judges, demonic spirits, have the right to be able to bring judgment on us because we've opened the door and we've given them a legal right. And how do you know when you are un under judgment of the enemy? Well, many are sick. That means without strength, physically or morally. They have no strength. They can't withstand things. They can't, they can't stop behaviors. Addiction is a, is, a, is a sickness where people are morally unable to stop what they are forced themselves to do because they've come under judgment and the enemy has taken over and he's forcing them to do things they don't want to do. Sick, which means infirmity, disability and illness. It means where your body is now affected by what was happening in your soul. It is a sickness of the soul that is manifesting in the body, in the flesh. And I want to tell you, friends, there are many, many people with cancers and with, with allergies and with autoimmune diseases and with arthritic diseases that all, and with some with senility, that all started off with bitterness, anger, and undealt with unforgiveness in hearts. 
and they have not dealt with it and it's had a legal right to grow and they've come under judgment and the enemy um, um, John 10 10 says come to steal to kill and to destroy and he's been given the legal right to steal to kill and to destroy and then it goes on to say and many have fallen asleep and that literally means have died friends we are given a period of time that God preordains for us to live and that is the fullness that he describes in Psalm 139. But the truth of the matter is the enemy can come and he can steal from us. He can shortcut our life. If he can get a legal right to interfere in what God has called us to do, he can literally kill us way before the time that God intended for us to die. And so we have to understand, friends, we have to keep our hearts pure. We've got to keep our attitude pure. Jesus says, you think that killing a person is bad. I'm telling you, if your attitude towards another person is derogatory, is hateful, is, sca is scandalous, is anger, is rage, or it's in any way malicious, when I see that, it will be looked upon as murder to that other person. Because you are destroying their reputation, you're destroying their heart and emotions. You know, people say that a physical abuse is a terrible thing, and it really is. But friends, emotional abuse and um, abuse through people's words is far, far, far worse. Because physical abuse hurts you on the outside, but the others cut deep into your very soul and, and restricts and arrests your personal development and growth. And we've got to be so careful that we are not using verbal abuse to try and get what we want because God will hold us accountable. Then it goes on to say in Matthew 5, 25 to 26, Come to terms quickly with your opponent while you are on the way to court, or your opponent may land, hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out of there until you have paid the last cent. Now he's saying, if things between you and your opponent has got so bad that they are taking you to court for what you've done, go and make right quickly. Do not involve the systems, the court systems of this world. Do not go to court for something you've got to repent of. Because if you do, I will not be there to protect you. You will have to take the full brunt of everything that is coming to you. But if you prepare to go and make right, to settle it out of court, to go and bring peace... You will not end up being punished for that which you have done. Repentance, friends, repentance, repentance is the key to breaking any punishment that is due to us because of our own choice making. And we have to understand we've got to be quick to repent. So much of the grace message says, oh, you never have to repent again. You've accepted Jesus. That is a lie from the pit of hell, friends. It's a lie from the pit of hell. If we do not repent for what we've done today, that is against the will of God. That, that violates our righteousness. The enemy has a legal right to destroy. And I want to tell you that anyone that believes they don't need to repent is playing right into the hands of the enemy. So as we look at thou shalt not murder, which is the fifth commandment, we see that Jesus is saying in this, Guys, remember I said to you, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We will not win friends and, and be able to establish favor with man and with God if we come with an attitude of anger. If we come with an attitude of having a mouth that breaks down. 
If you want to be able to win favor with man and with God and inherit the earth and establish things on the earth, you have to come in the opposite spirit. We cannot be like the system of this world. We cannot use abuse and rage and anger. We've got to come in the opposite spirit. We've got to be meek and friends. That means having full control of our emotions and having the ability in every situation to withdraw until we feel peaceful and we can go back and we can speak with great wisdom. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then Jesus goes on to discuss the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. In Matthew 5 verse 27 to 30, he said, you have heard that it was said to them, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What does the word adultery mean? It means unlawful intercourse with another's wife. It means debauchery, drawn into idolatry, which is idol worship, and it's the idol worship of a person's body. It means becoming a lover of another man's wife. And metaphorically, it means being faithless toward God, ungodly, and a deserter, a deserter of the marriage bed. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He says, but if you even look at somebody, then you're already doing it in your heart. That means to look with your bodily eyes. It means to see with the eye of your mind and it means to perceive. In other words, if you are having fantasies, imagination and thoughts and passions that are, desire, that are arousing you, then you are just as much as committing adultery. And therefore, pornography is such an incredibly strong evil because people feel as if they're not doing anything wrong because it's a sin that only involves them but friends you are lusting after another person you are uncovering the marriage bed and you are absolutely violating the order of God and the intimacy of a marriage between a man and a wife you know in the intimacy of a marriage is so beautiful before God that it is seen as worship. It is two people becoming one in the fullness of love and affection and adoration and giving each themselves to each other completely. It's about the man fulfilling the wife's desires and the woman fulfilling the man's desires. But when it comes to um, anything that is adultery or pornography, it's about satisfying your own lust. It's about idolatry. It's about worshiping yourself. And God says that if you do that, you've already committed adultery. So it's very important that we realize that God feels very strongly about the marriage bed being kept holy. Now, what is a marriage bed? Well, it is a man and a woman that are married to each other, that have committed themselves to each other other in intimacy that are not sleeping with anyone else and that are any not in any way contaminated by other relationships it is a, a, a male and a female married to each other that fulfill each other's desires needs and passions without any interference from any other person or from any other form of perversion that can interfere in the holiness of this intimacy and so God is very strong about guarding the intimacy of a marriage bed 
Then he goes on to say in verse 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body, one of your members, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, as we look at this, remember Jesus is speaking to the 12 disciples. He's talking to them about the body of Christ, the church going forward. So as he's speaking, he's always speaking to them individually, but he's also speaking through them and how they are to look after and care for the body. So when he says here, one of your members, he's talking about your own physical body, but he's also talking about a member in the church. Right is always the side of what is good and what is God. Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father. So when he's talking about the right eye or the right hand, he's talking about somebody who's being used of God gloriously for the kingdom of heaven. Now the word eye means a physical eye, but metaphorically it means the canvas of your imagination or your spiritual eyes. And so it means what are you opening your eye gates to? What are you physically seeing and what are you imagining? That is what it says. And it says a person... That's right eye, which means the eye that has been dedicated to the things of God, has sinned. Rather get rid of it. Deal with it. Don't let it contaminate your whole body. But it also means a person in a church who has prophetic insight to help in the direction of the church, to be able to see what God is saying. A person who's got spiritual eyes to bring destiny and direction into the church because they're on the right side. Because they're doing what God has called them to do, but they're in the body. He says, rather get rid of them. Tell them to leave. But do not let them stay in the church and contaminate the whole flock. And it's really important, friends, that we do this. Because if we don't, we're violating the word of God. And a little bit of a little bit of leaven goes a long way. There's so much contamination that happens because those that should be in leadership and those that should be in the place of directing the church have involved themselves with sexual immorality or pornography, and it absolutely fuses right through the body and contaminates the whole body. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, that word sin means scandalized, it means to entice into sin, it means to entrap another, it means to be entrapped by your own choices, it means causing one to stumble or to cause an offense. Then rather get rid of it. Um, right is always the place of honor and authority prophetically it's a side relating to goodness godliness and righteousness because of the fact that whenever God spoke about the right side it was always the side that Jesus would be manifested so it means being in the place of right standing with God and yet choosing to contaminate yourself or choosing to contaminate the whole body you know friends sin never ever just affects one person Whenever we choose to sin, a whole lot of people are affected by that which we've opened the door to. It says in Romans 12 verse 4 to 5, For we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. But we being many are one body in Christ, and every member belongs to the other. And so we see that Jesus is talking to them about their own behavior, but he's also talking to them about the way they are to manage the church and the behavior of the people in the church going forward. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for one to lose one part of your body, 
one of the members than the whole body to be thrown into hell. That's really, really a strong message. The word hell means Gehenna. It's a place of eternal punishment. It's called the Gehenna fires. It's the name or the place of everlasting punishment. Hell was established for the enemy. It was never established for humans. But God says if you insist on being immoral and, and, and having sexual immorality, you will land up in hell. Scary words, friends, scary words. In Revelations 21, verse 7 to 8, once again, these are the very words of Jesus that he dictated to John to record. He says this, He that overcomes shall inherit all things. So there's an overcoming, friends. There's an overcoming. There's a conquering that we have to establish. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But the fearful, that means the cowardice, the timid, those that are not prepared to stand for truth, the unbelieving, that means unfaithful, untrustworthy, or heathens. The abominable, that means vile, detestable, idolatry. Murderers, that means to kill with intention. Whoremongers, which is the word pornos, which means a male prostitute, a lust for hire, indulging in unlawful sexual intercourse. Fornication, the consensus of sexual intercourse between two people. You know, so often you hear people saying, we're two adults and it's consensual sex. Friends, don't let that justify anything. That will qualify you for hell. To give oneself wholly for another's will. And the sorcerers. Now the sorcerers means the word pharmakos or pharmakaos. That literally means taking drugs, a druggist, a pharmacist, a poisoner, a spell-giving potion. God says that if we are partaking of this, friends, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is so interesting. Do you know that that particular word, pharmakos or pharmakios, was only ever mentioned twice, and both times Jesus spoke about it, and both times in Revelations. It was not a warning to the church of the time, but it was a warning to us, friends, that for those of us who partake in that which is drug which is changing of our moods by the control of medication, which is changing of our emotions by the control of medication, which is controlling us, calming us, or in any way interfering with our soul. And friends, it's really, really relevant that we see this now, seeing as it's the big pharmacists that are trying to force us into taking medication at this time. We are being controlled by the pharmaceutical companies. And it's really, really important that Jesus warns us that this will result in hell. And idolaters, worshippers of false gods, worshippers of money, worshipping anything that we put before the Lord our God, and then all liars. That means someone who lies, who's deceitful, who's false, deception, deceivers, shall inherit their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In Revelations 22 verse 15 Jesus speaking again, and he says to them, those that, that are robed in righteousness can enter through the gates, but outside are the dogs. That means a man of impure mind, contaminated, polluted, dirty mind, impudent man, and sorcerers, once again, pharmacos or pharmacaos, drugs, druggists, pharmacists, poisoners, whoremongers, speaking once again of sexual immorality that violates the marriage bed, between anyone 
anything and whatever it is that we use for idolatry, for the satisfaction of our lusts that violate the kingdom of heaven. Murderers, idolaters, and whosoever loves and practices falsehood. Friends, it's a really scary warning that we have to understand that in these last days, God is looking for people that are holy, a holy nation. He's looking for people that reflect him. We've got to hunger and search after righteousness. We've got to know that God is holy and anything that is not holy cannot enter in to be with him. We've got to understand that God speaks so strongly about warning us about the lusts of the flesh. And we've got to be very, very sure that we keep our hearts and our minds pure because it's not just what you do, friends, but it's what you think that matters. He goes on in verse 30 to say, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Once again, he's saying, get rid of the part that is causing sin. The hand literally means, what are you doing with your hands? But it also means one who serves. It's symbolic of the creator's strength and might and the power of God. Right, being on the right side, doing the goodness of God. So it's somebody in the church that has got the authority to serve others. It's somebody that's walking in an office. It's somebody that's been called to serve the body of Christ. And if they sin, friends, they have to be dealt with and held accountable. But it's also for your own self. What are your hands doing? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Psalm 24 says. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Everything that Jesus is talking about here is making sure that our hands are clean and our hearts are clean. Because if we prepare to do that, then we prepare to be able to live in the fullness of that which God has got for us. Jesus' warning in Matthew 5 is very powerful. And he says, guys, if you thought that the Ten Commandments were difficult, I want to tell you now, it's not just what you do, but it's how you think. Why does he say that, friends? Because they never had the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the spirit of discernment living within them. They didn't have the guide living within them, the comforter living within them, the one that teaches them all things living within them. They didn't have the voice of God within them. Leading, guiding, showing the way. They didn't have the prompting of the Holy Spirit speaking, warning, encouraging, and challenging us. But we do. Those of us that are born again and spirit-filled have the Spirit of God, the conviction of God living within us, friends. And by just listening to the Holy Spirit, we never, ever, ever, ever have to sin. By just being so full of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will ooze out of us, flow out of us. And friends, we'll be quick to forgive. We'll be quick to repent. We'll be quick to let go. We'll be quick to flee from all appearance of evil because the Spirit of God is living within us. And that's why he's saying, guys, in the past it was all about self-control. But now it's about listening to the prompting and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and making sure that you listen deep within and that you don't allow yourself even for a moment, even in your thoughts, to be drawn into things that are sin. The tragedy is, friends, that once we've asked Jesus to come into our life and we choose to continue sinning, 
there's nothing more that he can offer us because we're violating the very punishment that he took on the cross to offer us forgiveness. Bless you so abundantly as we carry on with our study of Matthew 5 to 8. And next week I'm going to start by looking at the next thing that Jesus touches on in verse 31. And that is the subject of divorce. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. I pray, Lord, just for the most incredible infusion, infilling, and absolute overwhelming sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit, just pouring deeper in every single one. Father God, as people have listened to my voice, and as they've repented quickly for that which they've partaken of, you instantly forgive them their sin, because that's how wonderful you are. There's no guilt, there's no shame, there's a washing clean, and I just pray for such an increase of more Holy Spirit, more, so that they can be strengthened from within to be able to resist everything that comes against them. The enemy is always tempting, but we have the Spirit of God in us. Thank you for the grace, the person of grace, this person of the Holy Spirit that is with us. And Titus 2 says, that is your grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. God bless you, friends. Until we see each other again, goodbye.